in your Bibles to 1 Peter uh, chapter 1, verses 3 through 5. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 5. As we open your Bibles today, as we look at 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 5, I'm going to be reading uh, verses 3 through 12, but in today's sermon we'll be addressing only verses 3 through 5, but this is actually one long sentence in the Greek, so uh, hold on to your hats. Pay careful attention to the reading of God's Word. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 12. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, and so that the genuineness of your faith has been tested, more precious than gold that perishes, though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Christ Jesus. Though you have seen him, you love him, and though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would bless this time in your word. We pray, Father, for uh, the hearers, that they would, uh, their ears would be unstopped, that they would receive your word and rejoice in it. Father, we pray for the speaker that you would bless uh, this time. This is a special time, Father, where we come under your word. We pray indeed that that's what that would be, that it would be your word being preached and, and not Dan. Hear us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, today, and we've seen as we opened First Peter, uh, you know, whenever pastor's uh, gone and I'm filling the pulpit, we saw that the epistle of 1 Peter has been characterized as the epistle of hope. And certainly that'll come through clearly today. But I want you to think about the nature of hope. Uh, ben Franklin famously said that hope is an essential constituent of human life. And we know that in the absence of hope, uh, you know, things can go bad, right? We know if we know anyone who's committed suicide that, you know, either through letter or through experiences with others, will say they had no hope. And even uh, besides the sort of anecdotal knowledge that we have of the presence or lack of hope, um, there's actually a, an interesting psychological study that went on in the 1950s by a guy, his name was Kurt Richter, and uh, he was a psychobiologist. 
and he did some interesting studies. He took 12 domesticated rats and 34 wild rats, and he put them in a jug of water, and he was just curious, you know, what, what's, what's going to go on with these rats? And so with the 12 domesticated rats, 9 out of the 12 swam potentially for days. Now, three of them didn't swim for days. Um, and then he took the wild rats, and his expectation was that with the wild rats, they're more hardy, they're more accustomed to swimming, they're a little more rugged and rigid. Uh, well, within minutes, all of those rats perished, all 34 of them. And so his conclusion from that was that, well, the situation of these rats scarcely seems to be one of demanding fight or flight. His conclusion was that those rats experienced hopelessness and gave up. So he wrote, the rats are in a situation against which they have no defense, and they seem to literally give up. Now, he went on and uh, did another experiment with similar rats, and at the point where he imagined they would perish, he would take them out and pet them and soothe them and then put them back. And lo and behold, the rats, because they thought there was a potential of getting out, they persevered and they swam longer. And so Richter observed, after the elimination of hopelessness, they don't die. Now, people, of course, uh, live hoping for many things. And we could talk about many kinds of hope that we have in the world, but we're going to think about the hope of children or the hope of youth. It's a hope we've all experienced, and some of you are in the midst of it, kids, that you have hopes and dreams and aspirations. I hear it all the time from young people. They'll say things like, I can't wait to be an adult. And so as an adult, I ask, why? And they say, well, I can get a job. I can move out. I can buy what I want. I can do what I want. And the list goes on. Our human need to will, to act, and create are perhaps the strongest in our youth. The imagined, perceived, or even conceived of potentialities of the future push them on. I hope to get this. I hope to do that. I hope to be this, right? Now, children, of course, when they're young, they have future birthdays in mind, and they fix their hopes on things. Perhaps they might hope for a doll or a remote control car, right? Now, such hope could be described as a negative hope because it's a longing that they're uncertain about at the end of the day. Maybe little Johnny will get the remote control car. Maybe Susie will get that doll, right? But let's imagine that somehow they get their dream, right? Johnny gets his remote control car. And even if he gets it, it's still subject to the wear and the tear that's incumbent upon a remote control car by a little boy. Uh, if my experience is indicative, it's going to last a couple weeks, probably a couple days. Yeah. So the point is, it's going to be an uncertain hope whether you're going to get it or not. And then once, if you do get that hope, it's going to deteriorate sooner or later. Notice even the language that we use in English reflecting hope is uncertain. We hear things like, she hoped against hope that her child would be saved, or he has a fond hope of winning the lottery, right? Both of these hopes show that the people who hope have no certainty and no real expectation to receive what they hope for. Beloved, such is human hope as it's under the sun. Uncertainty and deterioration ultimately take that hope for us, from us, even if we do get to enjoy it for a bit. But I'm not here to talk to you about human hopes today. I'm here to talk to you about the Christian hope. 
And that's what Peter unpacks for us today in our passage. The Christian hope is nothing like the hope of a little girl who hopes to receive a doll. It's nothing like the hope of an investor that hopes to receive a profit. It's nothing like the hopes of a single person that in their mind they have this platonic, you know, form of the opposite sex and they hope to get married and have a good life with that person. It's not like any of those hopes. Rather, a good way of understanding this hope is that the Christian hope is a positive hope. Rather than being uncertain and deteriorating, in the New Testament, hope is a certain, confident, future expectation. So it would be better for us to understand the word hope here in Peter as confident expectation. Now, beloved, this theme runs throughout Scripture through the one covenant of grace, and we see it perhaps most clearly and early in Job. This idea of hope, this idea of future confident expectation. Job says this, it's this confident expectation that makes Job, in all of his suffering, cry out, I know that my Redeemer lives, and at last he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has thus been destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another. My heart faints within me. It's that same hope when Job is in that pathetic situation where the dogs are licking his sores and he's scratching himself with broken potsherds and his wife comes along and says, why don't you curse God and die? Job presses on. He perseveres. He knows that he has a redeemer that lives. How do you get that kind of hope? Well, Peter, of course, is looking at that hope from a different perspective. And, of course, Peter anchors hope, this confident expectation about the future, in the certainty, not in the future resurrection of the Son of Man, but rather in the past resurrection of Christ. Peter looks at it as an accomplished fact. As certainly as Christ rose from the dead, so certain is your hope. Just as Christ received life again from the dead, so do and so will we. We who were dead in our transgressions and sins have been regenerated, begotten again, or born anew, the passage tells us. We've been regenerated, begotten again, or born anew by virtue of Christ's resurrection, according to the Father's mercy. Because we have this new birth, we have a living hope because our Savior lives. Now, it's important for us when we speak about the language of being born again that we appreciate all that the Bible has for us there. Now, certainly it does take into account the sort of subjective renewal of things within us, that we've been reoriented, that we've repented, we've turned from the things of this world and Satan to the things of God and the kingdom to come. That's certainly true. But 2 Corinthians 5.17 tells us that if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. And we're new creations because Christ has accomplished the new creation. And as we're united to him by faith, we too participate in that new creation life. You are being fitted for the age to come. You are being recreated in a way where you can participate in the atmosphere of that land. So even now by faith you participate in Christ's resurrection life and his benefits. 
And we're going to look at how, how does, okay, preacher, how does that look, right? So we're going to unpack that under two rubrics today, just really quick. Baptism and the Lord's Supper. You participate in the resurrection life and his benefits through baptism, the Lord's Supper. So first, let's look at baptism. In baptism, you've been united with Christ in his death and resurrection. Whatever the Lord Jesus experienced as your federal head, as your representative, as the second Adam, you too experience it because you've been united to him by faith. So just like Jesus, when Jesus comes out of the waters at baptism and his father says, this is my beloved son, right? That is the pronouncement given to you. This is my son, my beloved son, in whom I'm well pleased. And then, of course, we see the same language after the transfiguration, right? And the father says, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. And that's the rub. Are you listening to the son of man? Are you listening to Jesus, the second Adam? And if you are, if you do listen to him, if you are his sheep, if you own your baptism, if your greatest identity is what your baptism speaks of, namely that you belong to God, that he has put his imprint upon you. You're baptized into the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And that it's not words or a ceremony, but it's a great reality representing your vital union with Jesus. Scripture says of you, if that's true of you, that you are seated in the heavenlies with Christ. And that's what your baptism speaks of. In the Lord's Supper, we see, of course, the only biblically sanctioned image of Christ, right? And I know I'm letting my Presbyterianism show here. Um, the idea that the images that we receive of God are forbidden. We don't make images of the divine. And Jesus, of course, being the second person of the Trinity, the divine person, we don't make images of him. But in the supper, we do have an image, right? And God leaves us an image that is visible, edible, but it's a picture and a remembrance of his death, right? And so the supper reminds us of a theology of, well, a theology of the cross, right? The supper screams to us that we have a theology of the cross, not a theology of glory. It's a theology where we must suffer first and enter into glory later. And that's a huge theme in First Peter that we'll get to later, not today. In the supper, you're also reminded of the nature of life and eternal life. Uh, during these times in COVID, I've been somewhat frustrated, and you know, the wife and we, we all talk about this, like, wow, we gotta go shopping again? We gotta go shopping again, we're out of, and it's, and I've also you know, stored a little bit of that extra food on me, well, you might notice. Um, the idea that we are beings that exist because we're dependent on something alien, an alien substance. We have to go get an animal and consume it. We have to get some plants and consume it, right? That we need something to stay alive. And beloved, just as that's true in the world of your body, right, in physical world, that's certainly true in the spiritual realm. That Jesus feeds us and the Lord's Supper is external, right? It's external. Just as the physical body will die without food, unless our souls feed on Jesus, they will have no life. But you feed upon Christ spiritually by your faith and participate in his benefits by faith. 
But of course, there's still a future aspect to our salvation. We await the final unfolding and full revelation of God's salvation. We await the last day. We await the new heavens and the new earth where all things will be made right. The revelation of this future hope is the Christian's greatest expectation and joy. Now, Peter says in the passage that our hope is unto an inheritance. Now, here again, in previous sermons, we've looked at how Peter is taking what is true of the old covenant people of God under the Mosaic times, and he's applying it to the New Testament church. And that's what Peter is doing here with the idea of the inheritance. He's taking these basic Old Testament concepts, and he's applying to them the church and her membership. Remember that in the Old Testament, God promised unto Israel an inheritance. Every tribe and every family would be allotted a certain amount of land, which would be their possession. Yet as we know from the Old Testament, their earthly inheritance was fleeting because their earthly inheritance was dependent upon their all too often failing obedience. Due to their sins, the land suffered under God's judgment. The prophets mention in passing that the land probably never enjoyed any of her Sabbaths, right? They were disobedient. And not only did national Israel suffer because of their sins, but the whole earth will suffer because of mankind's sin. Consider for a moment Isaiah chapter 24, verses 3 through 5, and just listen to the language. The earth shall be utterly empty and utterly plundered, for the Lord has spoken this word. The earth being utterly empty and utterly plundered. In the Septuagint, that is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament for Grecian Jews as the world became more, you know, Hellenized, more influenced by Greek culture, thanks to Alexander the Great, etc. This Septuagint, the words that they use and that your ESV translates as empty or plundered in the text, that the earth shall be utterly empty and utterly plundered, um, these are the words that Peter uses in our text to describe our inheritance. Whereas Isaiah is describing it as the earth's going to be utterly plundered and utterly empty, Peter goes ahead and he adds an ah before it, the prefix ah, right? A, not. And so uh, for Peter, the word's in its negative form. Whereas this present earth will be utterly empty and utterly plundered in God's judgment, Peter's making out the point in 3 through 5 that our inheritance is imperishable and indestructible, right? Isaiah's passage is pointing it out that it's perishable and destructible. Peter says your inheritance is imperishable and indestructible. In Jeremiah 2.7, God says of national Israel, I brought you into a fertile land to eat its fruit and rich produce, but you came and defiled my land and made my inheritance, or if your ESV will probably say heritage, made my inheritance or my heritage detestable, right? Peter takes the word that's translated defiled here, and he makes it negative. Again, he puts an A prefix in front of it, right? So instead of that, you know, the people are defiling the land, Peter's promising a land that is undefiled. It's beyond the reach of defilement. That's what your inheritance is like. Isaiah, commenting on the judgment of God, which brings drought on the land, says in Isaiah verses 40, chapter 40, verse 8, 
It's always amazing how self-conscious you are when you take a drink of water in public. Um, it says in Isaiah 40, verse 8, the grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our Lord stands forever. This usage of language, in contrast to the withering grass and fading flowers, Peter says that our inheritance is ever fresh, permanent, and enduring. Do you see what Peter's doing? Peter is picking up the pieces of Old Covenant Israel imagery of inheritance, and he's flushing out for us two things, and that's kind of what Hebrews does in some ways. He's pointing out the temporary nature of the Old or Mosaic Covenant with its typological hope in an earthly land and our obedience being tied to our hope in that earthly land. And he's comparing that um, with the New Covenant, the realities of the New Covenant, that one covenant of grace that we see in Scripture go from a bud to a blossom, that we see it in its infancy in the garden after the fall, and we see it in the Abrahamic covenant, and it comes to its flourishment in the second Adam who was hoped for. To put this really simply, when viewed from eternity, our hopes, our efforts, our obedience to the covenant of works last little longer than the perishable gallon of milk in your fridge. And if we're honest, maybe shorter than that. So Peter's showing us that our inheritance is the unmovable heavens and God himself. It's that kingdom represented by the rock cut out of a mountain, but not with human hands. That Daniel 2 vision that Nebuchadnezzar has, and he's troubled, and Daniel interprets it, right? That kingdom which Daniel says will come and destroy all other earthly kingdoms. That dream that Nebuchadnezzar had where there was this, you know, creature, this man that represented the kingdoms of the earth, and you started on the bottom, and its feet were made out of, I think, you know, uh, iron and clay, and then you worked your way up to more pure substances. There's a rock that he saw that comes and destroys all those kingdoms, and this is what Daniel says. In the time of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will it be left to another people. It will crush all these kingdoms and bring them to an end but it itself will endure forever. Beloved, that is what Peter is talking about when he's talking about your indestructible hope, your indestructible inheritance. Let this certain expectation, let this hope be your anchor as you are tossed about by the stormy seas of what Paul would call the present evil age. And Paul said that in the first century. That applies today too. Your inheritance, beloved, can never perish spoil or fade. Now, of course, it's the Lord Jesus who tells us in Matthew 6, right? Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. So when we talk about the Christian's heavenly hope, um, we're talking about the Christian hope, okay? We talk about heaven. Now, talk of heavenly hope has often fallen on hard times. It's characterized as pie in the sky, by and by. We often hear people utter the expression that someone is too heavenly-minded to be of any earthly good. No, that's just the monastic impulse. That's not the case, okay? Peter 
would actually argue that no, no, there's no such thing as being too heavenly-minded. The Apostle Peter couldn't disagree more, right? His whole epistle blows upon us with a fresh breeze from heaven. And rather than being useless, Peter sees this as the thing upon which we can base our service on, right? He calls us to service on the basis of our heavenly hope. The confident expectation that our God reigns and redeems and wins is ever-present because Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. Peter, of course, labors in that hope. Peter does not fear his crucifixion as he labors in that hope. Peter confesses that whatever our God ordains is right. Let's return again to this idea of the living hope. Peter uses living two other times in his epistle. In chapter 1, verse 23, he says, The word of God lives and abides forever. And in 2.4, he calls believers living stones who are built into a spiritual house. Gerhardus Voss, the uh, Princeton theologian, comments on the connection here. He says, Just as living stones are different from ordinary stones in that they don't wait passively until someone comes and puts them into a building, but rather living stones lend themselves in free spiritual activity for the purpose of edification. So a living hope is a hope which is not dead material in the mind of the believer, but it's an active force in his life. Something that makes its influence felt and carries him along, that sustains and inspires him. According to Voss, and more importantly, Peter, your heavenly hope is not just some pie in the sky. Okay, They're the marching orders from King Jesus but it's his marching orders. It's like a man who's swimming, right? If you've thought about this, as we swim in the water, our bodies are submerged, right? And the thing that's keeping us vivified is our connection to oxygen. Should the oxygen shut off, maybe some of you get 30 seconds, a minute, a couple, hey, we're right back to the rat story, right? It might be hopeless if you have no oxygen. But the fact of the matter is our head is in heaven. Christ Jesus, the Redeemer, is seated at the right hand of the Father when we're united to Him. And it's from that arena that we get our life. And it's down here that we act and follow His marching orders. So that heavenly hope that animates us is ultimately practical. Voss again, and this is the blurb in your bulletin. I apologize, when I sent that in, I didn't give an author, but uh, the blurb in the bulletin, this is from... Gerhardus Voss, it was a sermon he preached in the chapel at uh, Princeton Seminary way back in the day, probably the 1920s. Voss says this, The Christian is a man, according to Peter, who lives with his heavenly destiny ever in view, full view. His outlook is not bounded by the present life and the present world. He sees that which is and that which is to come in their true proportion and in their proper perspective. The center of gravity of his consciousness lies not in the present, but in the future. 
And beloved, as we look at our passage today, back to verse 4, notice that it says that this hope is reserved for you in heaven. This hope is kept for you. Consider that. God preserves heaven for you. The place where you'll experience his unhidden glory in full and free fellowship with him. There you shall see him as he is. God himself is your inheritance. Yet, beloved, we know, of course, that this good news is not so good if somehow we fail to get there. And, of course, we know that we don't get to heaven on the basis of our works. We're not able to attain heaven through our own ability. But in the passage, of course, God, in his great mercy, tells us that we're kept for that hope by the power of God, through faith in the Son of God, who loved you and gave himself for you. So God not only reserves heaven for you, but he preserves you for heaven, where you shall experience his salvation fully. Verses 4 and 5 tell us that your inheritance is kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Think about that. Heaven, the future, is reserved for you. And you, you are held for that future. Can anyone say with Peter, in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Think about that. And I don't mean to beat on us too much, but think about that when we say things like Alleluia or praise God. Peter has something really definite in mind here. Look at what the second Adam has done for his beloved. Praise God, right? He's focusing his praise on the being of God and the acts of God, right? And it's something to consider when we, you know, now there's nothing wrong with praising God about the Maytag man getting your washing machine fixed, but we also need to tune our hearts to God and his kingdom and his marching orders. Thus far in our study of 1 Peter, we've seen that our hope is a confident, heavenly expectation accomplished by Christ's righteous life and penalty-paying death according to the Father's mercy and the Spirit's inworking in you. It's important to note that this hope, this hope of our salvation, and this is chapter, verse 5, this, this hope is finished. Our salvation is finished, right? Verse 5 says that it's ready to be revealed at the last time. It's not undergoing a tune-up awaiting something, right? It's not waiting for some raw materials to be harvested. Now, certainly it's true that we do await the elect from the four corners of the earth being gathered in. But hear me here. It's ready to be revealed in the last time. We stand at the same historical horizon as these scattered pilgrims in Asia Minor in the first century. We live in the last days, the days between the resurrection of the Son of Man and his coming. We live in the last days. Since the resurrection, our salvation has been finished, awaiting us. And we're not called to add some final finishing touches to our inheritance or to speed its coming. We do pray for the speed of its coming. Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. But let's notice a couple things Peter doesn't say, and I'm going to get in someone's face, and that's, that's okay. And 
Keep in mind, this sermon was written 15 years ago, so it has nothing to do with current circumstances. He doesn't tell us to build our hope or put our hope in some future event like the rebuilding of a physical temple in Israel, right? There's a significant portion of evangelical Christians that, you know, on on the timeline before the end comes, that needs to happen, right? No, he doesn't say that. He says it's ready to be revealed. Nor does he tell us to put our hope in the progressive conversion of governments to Christ and then the end will come. Now, certainly as redeemed people, we, we vote, we participate in culture, we love our neighbor, and we interpret through that grid, loving my neighbor looks like what in society? And certainly you have a right and you should participate in that. But don't confuse your progress wherever you are on the political spectrum. Don't confuse that with inaugurating the kingdom of God. It is ready to be revealed. No, it's ready. It's ready to be revealed. Christ can come and consummate the kingdom at any moment. It's for this reason that Peter tells us in chapter 1, verse 13, to set your hope fully on the grace to be given you when Jesus Christ is revealed. Now, beloved, let's remember that hope, by its very nature, is forward-looking and invisible. The Apostle Paul puts it this way in Romans 8, 22 through 25. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved, but hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what he already has? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. This forward-looking hope of the Christian has our heavenly inheritance, our salvation as a whole as its object, and that inheritance shall be revealed at the last day. We remember that Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Consider the, moment, the nature of an inheritance, right? There's maybe a rich land-holding dad, and he decides to bequeath unto his son his inheritance when, who knows, the son reaches 25 years old. The good son, of course, will wait for his hope to become realized. The bad son, however, will look for a way to finagle and get around, and we know the sordid history of inheritances and people with means. You know, the kid might be tempted to bump off the old man. All that kind of stuff is certainly the story of the bad son. Well, the good son, of course, waits for the appointed time. Permit me to get a bit more direct in my application here. In the U.S., some of our politicians and preachers seem to think that the Christian's inheritance, now I'm saying seem to think, uh, that the Christian's inheritance has a lot to do with the here and the now and the kingdoms of this world. And they think that the kingdom advances through public policies. Or, God forbid, worse yet, that the kingdom advances through the sword, right? Um, You know, and this, you know, this has been an interesting thing in terms of politics to see both sort of the evangelical left and the evangelical right starting to have more of a say. Um, And, you know, uh, you know, if you're on the evangelical right, sometimes uh, the sort of uh, arguments could be sort of a 
thinly veiled argument for jump-starting the mosaic economy, right? If we just obey God in the right way in our land, everything will be wonderful and great. Now, there's certainly some truth to that. That is that under the creator God, you obey his law and things will go good for you in general. But has God made a promise to the land of the United States of America? Has he made covenant with them like Israel? The answer is no. The answer is no. Now, on the evangelical left, of course, you have sort of a thinly veiled Marxism um, or, you know, a, a nice utopia sort of picks and chooses from, you know, significant themes like exodus, freeing of the people. And what I have to say before you, beloved, is we need to take our cues for kingdom activity from scripture and not from culture, okay? The Christian's inheritance is not won by human persuasion, power politics, or God forbid, by tanks, guns, and bombs. Now, it is true that we speak of the church militant, the church militant. And if you're unfamiliar with these terms, that sounds kind of scary, right? What do we mean by the church militant? Well, beloved, the church is militant because there is a battle. It is a spiritual battle. We battle not against flesh and blood, right? But against rulers and principalities, etc. It's a spiritual battle. The church militant is the spiritual labor of the church in evangelism, in discipleship, in word and sacrament, in bringing every thought captive to King Jesus. And beloved, that ministry of the church is ministerial and declarative. It's words. It's the church exercising church government. Guys, we don't have the power of coercion. The church doesn't have the sword. We call people to repentance and faith, whether you're a believer or an unbeliever. And as you come to embrace that king and his kingdom, it's repentance and faith, an ongoing repentance, right? There's obedience to the Savior. That is the ministry of the word. That's the ministry of the church. It's about service. It's about the word preached. It's about the word being made visible when we have the minister of the word here to administer the sacraments. The word applied in spiritual is the word applied in spiritual nurture and discipline. And of course the word obeyed. So beloved, it is the meek, it is the lowly that need to receive an inheritance to inherit the kingdom. Because you're not going to go to Home Depot and get the raw materials and start building it. It's not that kind of a kingdom. Now that inheritance that the meek and the lowly receive will be the inheritance which was won by Christ, but only if you suffer with and for the Lord Jesus. And we'll see that pattern as we continue to unpack First Peter. So, beloved in the Lord Jesus Christ, let us remember that our hope is an inheritance that is future. Now, we do participate in it here and now. The Word, sacraments, prayer. God loves to commune with His people, and He hears you, and He calls you His good and faithful servant. But that inheritance is future, heavenly, and it can never perish, spoil, or fade, and you are being kept for that. And beloved, if our hope were present or visible, or even if it was some fancy utopian idea that we baked up, and we somehow thought we had all the right materials, guys, we know how that works. The principle of sin frustrates our plans. So permit me for a moment before we close in the sermon, to direct the eyes of your faith toward the hope of which Peter speaks. 
the hope of the last day and the consummation of God's kingdom, the hope which fuels your service toward your neighbor today. Hear from Revelation 21, verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There'll be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. Now we'll see this next time we meet, that this present heavenly reality that awaits a fuller experience in the new heavens and the new earth, it's the basis for Peter's call to persevere and be faithful to our Lord in whatever sufferings he calls us to. But now, beloved, glory in the great salvation that your God has brought you. Amen. Let us pray. Father, how we give thanks for Jesus, the Son of Man, the second Adam, who came and did all that Adam failed to do, who came and did all that Israel failed to do, rather than defiling a holy place like Adam in the garden, or defiling a holy place like Israel in Canaan, we see that Jesus comes and he has made a cosmic temple being built with living stones. And Father, it's not the kind of uh, place where we can march in and tip over objects and destroy it, defile it. Rather, it's undefilable. It's imperishable. It's held in heaven for us, and we're held for it. We give you thanks for this, and we love you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.